What is the Xbox expansion pass? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, hello. Greetings. I am 343 Guilty Spark, monitor of Installation 04. Greetings to all of you reclaimers here on Xbox Expansion Pass. <laughs> Xbox Expansion. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 125 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, March 27th, 2022. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we welcome Stephen Frost, executive producer of Digital Eclipse, on to discuss his work in the gaming industry, dating back to the old days of yore and Sega, and now bringing his retro games to current audiences with Digital Eclipse. The Cowabunga Collection, the Mega Man Collection, and more are discussed in this with even a small bit of info on Marvel vs. Capcom 2. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XCP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I am wont to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, my gaming week has been made better by Mr. Stephen Frost, executive producer over at Dig Digital Eclipse, for joining me today. Late notice, I might add. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, I, I love uh, sort of uh, trying to chat with folks and just share our love and mutual interest of games. And so it's nice when I can uh, find the time to do it. So yes, thank you and uh, and welcome everybody. Absolutely. And so uh, most recently, uh, people might know your name from we've got some Ninja Turtles love coming out in the next few yeah. months to year, which I'm very excited to talk about. But I'd be remiss if I didn't go back to your extensive history in the games industry, something that uh, spans game journalism to community management, all the way through game development. So, Stephen, take us back. Take us back to when you first started in the industry. Sure. I mean, this this goes back in the heyday to uh, my college years when I was living in um, Oregon, actually. I attended the University of Oregon in Eugene, Oregon, and um Leading up to that, I had spent a lot of time on computers and learning about computers, uh, a lot of focus on website uh, design and development, HTML, back in the early days um, when people were sort of learning about HTML. And it was the era of CompuServe and AOL and things like that. Um, but I, I had a sort of a, a personal interest in website design and, and computers and was trying to figure out what to do. When I went into college, you know, I'd spent so much time with computers, I didn't really think of it as a feasible sort of um, employment opportunity. You know, you just like normally when you like something a lot, um, you don't really think about it as a job because, you know, a job is a job. Mm -hmm. um, but while I was attending the university, I kind of saw an ad for a video game studio, well, actually PC development specifically, PC game development studio called Dynamics, which was literally across the street almost from the university. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't know, Dynamics is sort of a uh, sister studio or under the uh, sort of the title, the Sierra 
brand, which is the classic company that made like King's Quest and Police Quest and and all these classic Roberta Williams kind of games back in the day. And the Dynamic Studio did uh, things like um, Red Baron and um, we were doing some, a lot of, uh, it was the era of sort of transition to FMV kind of games, you know, the big push towards like, oh my goodness, we can do full motion video. Let's put it in all of our games and, and somehow. So that was sort mm-hmm. of like on the, the beginning of that. But I went over there and I saw they had some position for QA. Um, I was still trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life and thought, well, getting a job might be uh, might be a good way uh, um, to sort of progress along. And, and it was related to computers because it was basically testing PC games. So I went over there, walked over there at one point at lunchtime, and they gave me like this... Um, test basically it was like i don't know how many pages three or four pages or something and i quickly went through it and they said oh wow okay um can you start tomorrow and i'm like oh yes sure tomorrow wow yeah yeah so it was a it was a pretty sudden thing they really needed some folks and so my first sort of official video game gig was qa on a game called rama which is based off of the uh series of books um as well sci-fi kind of, of stuff and it was one of those fmv sort of games where you know, still background and 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 human uh, people being recorded and talking, and so that was my first QA kind of gig, and you know, I just kind of went on there, and there was a few other games, uh, Hunter Hunted, and Cyber Gladiators, um, and, and things like that, and, and testing new hardware, and and so it was it was really cool, and I really enjoyed it. I got a little taste of sort of a puzzle design, and a little bit of a taste of production what what a producer could be um, mm-hmm. because I got to work closely with the teams and stuff like that so that was sort of a fun experience however being in Oregon there aren't many alternatives or, or you know options for continuing that career if that's something that you're interested in there were only a few different developers there there was dynamics there was trilobite who did the um, seventh guest and 11th hour game for those who know that and then there was, I think it was Garage Works, which is still around, which is another studio. Um, but there wasn't much uh, to choose from. And so I, I, I came to the conclusion like, well, you know, over the, of the years that I worked at Dynamics that I, I wanted to continue this in some capacity. I didn't know how, but that I probably needed to move to another state, maybe California or Texas. Those were the two big kind of video game states at the time. To, and what year was this? Like ballpark? Uh, it's like, well... Later, when I was really serious about uh, moving on, it was about like 96, I think. Okay. So um, so it was the, sort of the heyday there. It was the dot-com kind of, you know, big era. And a lot of the technology and video game stuff was happening in California and Texas. And so I interviewed at a variety of, of places across both states. But it was difficult because at the time, they're like, oh, yeah. We love your background. We love your knowledge of computers. Um, we love your experience at Dynamics. Um, but they were more focused on hiring internally where they were, or within the state at least, right? Getting someone to come from uh, from Oregon was probably you know, not feasible uh, from their perspective. So it did, nothing really sort of panned out until um, I happened to start applying to alternative things for video games, which was like places like Imagine Media or Slash Future at the time, which did um, video game magazines and mm-hmm. websites. So this was this was during the big heyday of, of video game magazines. Websites were just starting to come to fruition, right? They didn't have like the um, clout that they sort of do now 
with the passing of magazines. Magazines were the thing back then. Um, and so just through this sort of back and forth discussion with multiple people at that company, they came to realize like, oh, he can write and he also understands website design and knows how to code HTML. And so I landed eventually a job there as a webmaster for the Ultra Game Players website, which was you know matching a magazine at the time, which used to be Game Players, but then sort of transformed into Ultra Game Players. So I came, you know, moved, packed all my stuff up and moved to uh, the Bay Area in California um, to sort of start writing about games. And I was on there doing that and also helping with magazines and other websites like Next Generation Magazine website to uh, either write stuff for it or contribute to the website. And I did that for a while and really enjoyed it and learned a lot. And then I had an opportunity, the editor-in-chief of Ultra Game Players, Chris Slate, uh, who now actually works at uh, Nintendo in Washington. He's a huge Nintendo fan. Um, he came and sort of asked me, well, we're starting up a PlayStation magazine. Do you want me to help start up the PlayStation magazine? I said, oh, yes, that's uh, sort of phenomenal. Um, for those who sort of care, though, um, when I left to go switch to PSM, which is within the same company, I was actually start just starting to help uh, sort of figure out what would eventually become the Imagine Games Network or IGN that people know now. Right. So, so back then, it was all separate sites. It was like Saturn World, PSX Power. Um, I can't remember what the N64 website, but it was, you know, it was like separate kind of splintered sites with individual staff. And mm -hmm. we were now thinking about like, okay, how do we connect these together, brand them similarly and unite, start to unite everything, right? So this is sort of like the early, early, early stages of that. Mm -hmm. um, so I started thinking about that a little bit, but then ended up getting the, you know, the opportunity to go to PSM. So I kind of said bye uh, to that online team and just moved down further in the building to start uh, PlayStation Magazine. And, um, and did that for about six or seven years and had a, a blast doing it, you know, in, in my twenties, getting to travel, cover video games, the pe the rest of the people in the magazine were very close friends. Uh, so it's literally felt like just hanging with your friends, talking about games and traveling and getting paid for it. Uh, it was, you know, a, as you can imagine, an amazing opportunity. And I learned a lot and, you know, but during that time, during those years, I, you know, back of my head, I always say like, well, the real reason I came to California was to get back into game development. You know, that's where I started. This is sort of a, has been a long sort of stop or <laughs> along the way, but I really wanted to get back into it. And so finally, after about six or seven years, I just sat at my desk and just decided, you know what, I need to, I need to just decide to leave and, and, uh, uh and do something. And so I started investigating jobs and looking up jobs and um and there was an opportunity at electronic arts uh to work in their department called ea partners which is the department of ea that kind of works with external developers so obviously most stuff or a lot of stuff back then at ea was developed internally by studios that existed there but they needed people to help manage external teams and some of the external teams they had were like um, Dice, who works on Battlefield. This was the relatively early days of Battlefield still, and and a myriad of other companies. And so I, I came in and, and started working there. Uh, my first gig was on a a strategy game, RTS sort of strategy game, similar to the vein of Warcraft, really. It's like an homage to Warcraft called Armies of Exigo. And, you know, my, my job was to sort of like help the teams sort of make this game a little bit more accessible to more casual players who weren't necessarily diehard 
um, RTS fans. And so, you know, this was my sort of second return to uh, video games in some ways uh, and secondly uh, for development. And so again, you know, great, great place, obviously EA, huge company, lots of resources, lots of opportunities to learn. And so I worked on a lot of different types of games, um, uh, Oddworld, uh, Stranger's Wrath, for those who love Oddworld, um, that was a that was an exciting project to work on. I worked on Tie the Tasmanian Tiger by Chrome Studios, and um, and it just got you know a, a lot of experience working on different types of genres and t- different types of games and, and, and things like that. Um, so worked there uh, for a while. And hold on now. I, yeah. I have to, I have to interject Stephen, only sure. because you've listed 408 places that <laughs> you've impacted the game industry and we're not done. Tell me what year we're in right now. So at this point, we're probably in, uh, what? 2003, 2004. Okay. Maybe? So I, it, yeah. Yeah. Leading up, you've done the, the, the precursors to IGN. You worked at official yep. PlayStation magazine, which so many of us, uh, had access to you touched the Abe's Abe's Odyssey uh, franchise. You, yeah. You've laid a lot of foundations here that I I would venture to say have impacted and had ripple effects all the way through uh, even to today. Does that is that weird to think about for you? Yeah, I mean it is great, but I will correct one thing. Sorry, I I wasn't at the official PlayStation. I was at the SPSM, which was an unofficial PlayStation, which which was a sort of a rival to the official PlayStation magazine. Got it. Um, so Got uh, it. I, I'll <laughs> I'll poke at them a little bit because I know those guys well. But we were the number one basically PlayStation magazine, pretty much I think in the world. Um, we had we had a very huge circulation, and it was always this fun sort of poking uh, back and forth between us and. OPM, which was the official PlayStation magazine, right? Okay, um, okay. for for quite a few years. Ironically, at the tail end, uh, many years later, uh, uh, shortly after I kind of left a bit, um, PSM actually got we got the official PlayStation license, and then became the official PlayStation magazine after I left. Um, so it was kind of this weird <laughs> full circle kind of scenario, but. Um, but yeah, it was it was a great um, had a blast there at EA again. Um, learned learned a lot of stuff um, and got to see what working at sort of a bigger publisher with all of its resources and you know um, money could 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 do. And that was a very big learning experience for me. And again, I worked with uh, several people who I still talk to this very day who taught me a lot. Um, and really gave me um, valuable insights to, you know, just game development in, in general. So um, at that time, like I said, I worked there a few years. I, I'm thinking it's probably like 95, 96 at this point. And I um, had this opportunity to go over to Activision to work on Marvel games. So there was a studio in Foster City called Z-Axis, which originally was sort of an extreme sports studio. Um, they did like inline um, skating and some other stuff that were sort of more of like, uh, uh, you know, extremes kind of sports stuff, not your typical stuff. Mm-hmm. And they were being sort of redesigned and remodeled to start to work on uh, Marvel games. And the my boss at EA at the time went over to sort of manage the studio and, and even now, and back then, especially I, I, I've always been a big 
comic book fan, right? And and love Marvel and and I would have loved to work on a Marvel game. And so eventually uh, went over there from EA and and started working on um, it, it wasn't quite the the Wolverine game that came out because it ended up moving over to a new studio. But we we started the process of creating a Wolverine game for Xbox 360 and PlayStation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, sort of, from my recollection, kind of the first big budget attempt at making a Marvel game. Um, and so it was really exciting time and just the amount of 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 thought and the talent that we brought in. We brought in folks from the you know, we hired people from the God of War team, there's a God of War team. And, and there's just so much amazing, like energy and talent. And that was a, a really um, exciting point for me from the standpoint that it was ever since sort of dynamics, it was my really first time on a development team directly working on games, right, and helping to design games. And to work on a Marvel game of all things was especially, especially exciting. And so just seeing that the early phases of that game come together, its designs contributing to all of that um, stuff, especially in the early stages. Cause you know, these teams, they start very small, like start like seven people before they balloon up right dramatically. Um, so that was really, um, really an exciting uh, sort of, of, of time. And, uh, and my, uh, you know, sort of exposure again to working directly on a development team. So at this point I've had, working with external development teams at EA and then again, working at internal development teams at Activision. Um, so was there a few years, um, I think about mm, three years maybe. Mm-hmm. And just through sort of no fault of our own, uh, the, the sort of Activision mothership decided to kind of change the priorities of, of what the studio was working on and what we were going to do and things like that. And so we, we ended up, unfortunately, uh, having a transition to help out other studios, uh, like working on true crime, uh, things like that. And it, it, there was a lot of uncertainty about that studio and what was going to happen to it. And so I decided just to be sort of safe and just to continue my journey to sort of uh, head over to another company where I can continue my career. Um, so uh, at that point, um, I, I rejoined folks that I work with at EA and joined Sega. And um, that was uh, certainly a bulk of my career. That was uh, in the city. Uh, Sega's in San Francisco. Um, so my first gig in the city and uh, first sort of real opportunity to work with a company that is predominantly Japanese-based, right? Uh, mothership mm-hmm. is in Japan. And, um, and obviously getting to work with a variety of franchises and games <clears throat> that people still love to this day. And so, you know, I started uh, when Sega was at one building and then we ended up moving to another building um, um, later on. But during my time at Sega, which was almost a decade, really, um, I worked on uh, various licensed stuff. I worked on Marvel games, um, you know, Iron Man, Thor and things like that. And the ironic mm-hmm. aspect of it is that when I was at Activision, um, we had a lot of those Marvel games and eventually Activision for, you know, lack of interest, the movies hadn't come out, right? Iron Man was just in the early stages of potentially coming out. And at that time, right. actually, actually, that at the time had uh, Tom Cruise associated with it. So 
Well, all the theories now <laughs> jump into that. So there you go. You know. Yeah, it was it was it was a weird uh, sort of scenario, and um, um, and then I think, from my understanding, you know, Tom Cruise decided decided to sort of step away, and um, things fizzled out a little bit for the movie, and so, um, I think Activision, from my understanding, kind of let their license, you know, their timelines kind of expire, and. At that time, you know, I had moved over to Sega and then Sega saw that as an opportunity and ended up picking up the license for Iron Man, you know, Hulk, Thor and all of those kind of first pass, uh, you know, first wave of Marvel movies. Right. And straight up, I love that Iron Man game you're talking about. That was one of my favorites. And I've got the Captain America one sitting on my shelf right now for my 360. Uh yeah, those were I miss old license games. That's one of the questions we have, because there was something special about them. I yeah, I mean, it's 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 an interesting scenario. And it was still during the time where, um, you know, we tried to uh, invest the appropriate money and time into it. But it's really tough because um, even the movie industry, even Marvel, who was who was starting to get traction because of the success of Iron Man, was trying to understand sort of how video game development works and like how can the movie team and, and other groups kind of work together in a in a cohesive way to help each other um so it was kind of a learning curve a bit and you know those schedules as you can imagine because they have to hit the movies are are very tight um you you have to work uh, very fast and mm-hmm. you know there isn't necessarily an opportunity to sort of iterate as much as you'd like on on some of the gameplay so you kind of pick a couple things that you want to sort of focus on and then you kind of, you know, just put all your energy and your, and your time into those things and uh, you know, sort of hope for the best. But yeah, I worked on sort of myriad of, of, of that stuff. It was great um, for Thor. I got to um, demo the game for Tom Hiddleston and um, Chris Evans at Comic-Con, which was a, That's which was cool. a very great and, you know, like to their credit, it was, Normally, you know, throughout my career, I've demoed for various celebrities or folks, and I will point out to them that they really were um, not only friendly and nice, but showed genuine interest in the game and Mm -hmm. asked about how the buttons work and how combos work um, and and things like that. And actually spent, you know, a a good amount of time actually playing the game, though Hiddleston was actually (laughs) jokingly upset that like, you know, he wasn't a playable character in that game. It was just Chris, Chris Evans, but you know, though it's, it's great to, to sort of show these games to the folks that they're kind of based on to a degree and have them excited about it. Not only that, but also show a genuine sort of enthusiasm for it. So that was a really nice moment, um, uh, at at Comic-Con and, um, you know, progressed along and, and, and did a variety of, of other Sega IP like Shinobi. Um, we did a, a, a new Shinobi game. Um, which uh, was well received and very very challenging. Um, you mentioned uh, Phil Theobald, um, I think earlier, and yeah. he he actually contributed to that. He was a writer on that on that game. Um, By the uh, way, the, listeners, that's Phil Theobald of Player One Podcast. Yes, uh, yes. the voice of the devil. <laughs> though I will say this, I feel really bad because um, even though he wrote, uh, we. And it was, I'll take full responsibility for this. I forgot his name in the credits. It, I felt so bad. <laughs> um, but there was so much going on. And he was an external contractor, right? He didn't work at Sega at the time. 
Uh-huh. And um, and I just zoned out and forgot about it. I eventually like wrote a uh, like a website uh, apology to him on the Sega on the Sega website. Yeah. Um, but I just felt bad, and and you know I'll say this to Phil if he listens. You know, Phil, I still think about that, and and I'm so sad about forgetting you the credits. Um, he's fine with it now, obviously, but uh, it was just one of those. I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot for I cannot believe I forgot that. So apologies, Phil. Nice. Um, so. Um, you know, continued that and eventually um, got my foot in the door and starting to work on um, our fabled blue blur Sonic the Hedgehog, right? Mm-hmm. And um, started out uh, helping a little bit on um, this was the era of the Wii U, um, right? And so Sega was Sega was big into the uh, the Wii U and supporting it um, or trying to support it with stuff and and trying to do exclusives and, and, and things like that and. Um, Sonic was for the time starting to be sort of exclusive to the Nintendo platforms, um, like Lost World and, and mm-hmm. things like that. So, um, sort of started uh, around that era, um, and then predominantly focused on our sort of Sonic Boom initiatives. Um, you know, not only the sort of game stuff, but also for those who are not familiar with Sonic, um, kind of matching animation an animation show which uh really went off and did really really well i'm really proud of that that uh, cartoon um and and the quality of the writing and 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 everything so uh, but it was a multi sort of tiered effort to try to um take a little bit more of a western approach to sonic um, which is obviously predominantly developed by um a team in japan mm-hmm. and um try to adjust the humor and sort of how the, the sort of the tropes or the personality types are for the different characters and try to sort of elevate them um, a little bit. And, you know, it was a, it was a big endeavor. Some things worked out better than, than others. Um, But, you know, I think the highlights of, of that sort of in, you know, efforts were like the cartoons and also the, this whole, merchandising stuff which which did really well um for sega and it had a huge boon to their sort of interest in like merchandising and licensing and things like that and so the toys especially did really really well uh for them and i think ironically and i don't i can't correlate these two things uh really but i think that it helped definitely contribute to the to the general decision to move the headquarters from san francisco to southern california mm-hmm. um how that you know, i think I think Sega, you know, like I think Sega wanted to get a little bit more into the licensing and Hollywood and things like that with Sonic and some of their other IP. And what better way to do that than to move closer to Hollywood, right? Um, So, um, you know, this was one of those kind of uh, abrupt decisions. I think that was that was made. Um, It was um, kind of thrown onto folks a bit suddenly. I would say uh, in a nice way. And so I think a lot of people at Sega had been working there for quite a long time. You know, I had been there almost a decade, but I wasn't by far the, the person who'd been there longest. There have been people there 15, 16 years, um, which is for the video game industry, a very long haul to be at a single location, no doubt. Um, but I, I think that a lot of people just decided to sort of part ways and stay in the Bay Area when, when Sega moved um, south and you know, and, and no harm, no foul. They, they had to do what they wanted to do. Um, but a lot of people I think were entrenched in the, in the Bay area and wanted to sort of stick around. Uh, and I was, I was one of them. So, 
Um, but at that time, you know, after like three or four years of working on Sonic and, you know, it's, there's no doubt that Sonic is a bit of a stressful, a stressful gig. Um, I had some, some of my highest highs and my lowest lows, you know, working there. And uh, I will, I will just say that to the folks who came up to me at Sonic fans and, and chatted with me all those years and at the conventions and especially Sonic Boom in New York, which was an amazing experience to sort of MC, but the, the the genuine fans who come up and have a heartfelt sort of connection to Sonic and, and Sonic was the games that sort of helped them get through a tough time in their life and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, those stories are amazing and, and sort of like the highlights of my career from the standpoint that they're the high of the highs, right? Like they, you make a product or you contribute to products that, that touch people or have a positive influence on them. Mm-hmm. And that's all you can really hope for to a degree, right? As, as far as uh, when you wake up in the morning. And, and to that regard, you know, I'm so thankful, uh, to the, to the Sonic community and, and those who I got a chance to talk to in, in my brief time, uh, working on Sonic, um, on the, on the opposite side, which is always difficult. Sonic, as you may know, has a very polarizing effect, um, not only on, on fans, but, you know, people viewing it from the outside as well. And, and with so many different game types and, and so many iterations of Sonic through the years, um, there's a lot of splintering of the community, I feel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of arguing back and forth about like what type of game is better and, and which versions of characters are better and things like that. And that's sort of the part. And you get that with any sort of community that is large, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the unfortunate uh, sort of aspect of any IP that's always tough, right? You get barraged with negativity sometimes and, and things like that. And some of it certainly is deserved, no doubt. Um, but, you know, it's always better to approach things from a, a creative perspective, like, hey, you know, you guys could probably do this and make things better versus, you know, just yelling, right? Yelling doesn't really accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so... But, you know, it gave me a very big perspective uh, of like, you know, the highs and highs and lows and lows of, of any particular sort of project I've worked on. And it, it did give me an opportunity, like I said, to sort of host Sonic Boom in New York, which is this um, regular gathering of Sonic fans from around the world and who come together to sort of celebrate Sonic and, and what, he, what he and his gang mean to them and being on stage and and for like five or six hours or whatever it was, uh, I'm seeing that event in front of like, you know, thousands of, of people is, is amazing. Right. And just the positive amount of energy in the room and just getting to talk to meet to people, well, you know, still to this day is, is a very, very great moment. And just a, a thing that I look back on fondly. Um, so that was, you know, um, while the, the second move to Southern California was kind of sucky in some ways, um, you know, the highlights of Sonic boom and things like that really, uh, I felt like I ended uh, Sega on a kind of a high note from that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time, like I said, I was a little bit burnt out, tired. Um, I wanted to take a bit of a break uh, from the industry and kind of rejuvenate and, you know, figure out what I wanted to do next since I had been working with uh, quite a few large publishers during those times. And so I took a time off and things like that. And then just through sort of chance, got in contact with Mike Micah, um, who you mentioned uh, previously, and just started talking to him about like uh, other illusions slash digital clips and what they were doing and what their goals were for the future. And, um, you know, I knew several people who were working there from, again, my journalism days back um, years prior. 
and just said, well, you know what? This is great. This is a, this is a small right now, but growing kind of uh, studio. Um, their sort of mission of preservation and, and kind of the direction that they're going in, I agree with fully. And, um, you know, uh, being a smaller company, I feel that there's a lot more opportunity for me to um, get in there and make an impact, help make decisions and sort of drive, help drive where the company is going as a whole. And so um, I felt that that was a, a, a good uh, place to return to um, when after my break. And, you know, I've sort of been there ever since for the last um, almost five years at this point, I think. So, yeah. That is that is extensive and awesome and amazing. And it brings us to Digital Eclipse, which uh, you said you've been there five years. There are a lot of projects that people are probably very familiar with of late, both from their childhood and what Digital Eclipse has produced uh, in the last few years. What right. was the first Digital Eclipse project you worked on? And then I suppose for... For clarity's sake, what does Digital Eclipse focus on for the listeners? Sure. So um, I'll start uh, with the what we focus on. So Digital Eclipse as a whole, you know, has been around in various iterations for quite a few years. Um, back in the day, we actually did, and I wasn't there, obviously, but we did some of the first, you know, kind of early emulation um, that was actually released as a as a retail product, right? Um, with the Midway, we did a, a variety of Midway games and things like that. So I think really, as far as seeing a commercially released product, uh, we were right there at the foreground with, with emulation um, and being some of the first folks to, to kind of do that. And, you know, the company has kind of gone through some uh, growth and shrinkage as it became part of a larger entities like Foundation 9, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and which was a group of, of studios. Um, and then uh, eventually that kind of splintered off and, and, and folks went different ways. And then uh, Andrew, who's our, our head, uh, retained, you know, we got back the rights to sort of the Digital Flips brand and wanted to sort of bring that back in, in a meaningful and, and important way. And the first project that we sort of the resurgence or rebirth of, of uh, digital clips. And I kind of uh, uh, compare this to sort of like Little Mermaid a little bit for, for uh, from Disney terms. A lot of people, this is a weird uh, analogy, but a lot of people uh, feel that like Little Mermaid was the start of like this new generation of like Disney, right? Animation and like its growth to like become a hugely successful company and stuff like that. It's like a different style of animation and uh, it kind of grew from there. Um, and so I felt, you know, I personally feel that like Mega Man uh, Legacy Collection, which was our first sort of big release mm-hmm. with this new digital eclipse is kind of our Little Mermaid from the standpoint that it it helped to define um, what uh, our goals are and, and what sort of products we want to release and what we plan to do for the for the future. And really fundamentally uh, from our from our, you know, uh, our hearts and sort of our, our daily goals is to sort of help in in some meaningful way kind of the preservation of a lot of these games um, that tend to disappear right and and not only that but to help educate people um, about uh, games in in general um, as as most people might know through the you know the 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 lack of of just continued re-releases of of games and the closure of online stores you get a lot of products and a lot of games uh, each year that kind of disappear into the ether that have no easy way of 
sort of being re-released again, you know, and you would never imagine this for, say, the movie industry, right? Uh, even older movies, Casablanca and, you know, Sound of Music or any of these um, older um, um, films that um, were key, important uh, sort of influencers in the industry, they get re-released over and over again with every new sort of format that is released in the in the movie industry. Um you know, and while early on there was definitely a problem with like the loss of, of, of movie footage and things like that, that to a degree has been, uh, you know, resolved. And, you know, most uh, movie studios and even indies understand the importance of preservation and, and keeping the film and, and digital content uh, sort of alive. So it's not a strange thing in the movie industry to see movies being re-released over and over and over again and always being in the forefront so you don't forget about them. However, in the video game industry, it's very, very different. Um, you know, due to differences in the platforms and how things evolve and due to the closure of, of online stores and services, um, it gets harder and harder for players to gain access to older games, unless, of course, they somehow have it physically or, um, you know, stored digitally on a hard drive on a, on a console that they're not going to do anything with, you know, they're just going to keep it to protect it. Um, it, it isn't, there isn't a clear cut way to, to um, get a, any content that you want, even though it's existed before because it's been on another platform, right? Mm -hmm. um, so our key thing is to try to continuously um, take uh, sort of older classic games that people have, uh, grown up with and have a fondness for an attachment for, and then bring those to the forefront again on modern platforms. And, and hopefully not only reinstill that sense of nostalgia in fans, but also if we do our work right, um, bring in a new audience or a new group of people who might just sort of be familiar with the, the properties or the IPs. And because of the presentation that we provide, um, have some interest and then also pick up the collection and learn, uh, learn about it. Right. Um, so in general, uh, we, we love to do this preservation thing, which is in our way, bringing classic games to the forefront again, um, on modern platforms, but not only that, because, you know, you see a lot of people who release collections in a limited way, um, you know, on consoles and PC, but what we try to do is kind of go behind the scenes and, also provide the context behind the game in in order for people to understand why it's important and why we're doing this collection in the first place. And, you know, for something like Street Fighter, which was my first um, collection uh, that I came into Digital Clips to work on, the Street Fighter 30th Anniversary Collection, that's sort of more obvious. Street Fighter is a very, very popular um, franchise and known by, you know, millions and millions of people. However, in the cases of like, for example, um, SNK 40th Anniversary Collection, which came uh, just after Street Fighter, which is a collection of pre-Neo Geo um, Atari games for the most part. And, you know, uh, when people think about SNK, even if they are familiar with SNK, they predominantly know it from the Neo Geo era, right? That was the big heyday arcade cabinets and things like that, that people know. But there was an era before uh, the Neo Geo that was very important. Uh, as, as far as not only SNK as a company, but uh, it, about their influence on the industry as a whole and the types of games that came out that made an impact and in, in sort of drove um, inspiration and sort of innovation 
for years to come. And that collection, for example, is something that most people would not be familiar with as far as the games included in it. And so, you know, being able to, to go out and, um, you know, find the motherboards for these, the PCBs for the arcades and, and get them working under uh, accurate emulation and, and, and provide insight into why um, these games are important and, and why they deserve your time to, to sort of play and to understand is kind of the secondary part of what we feel is important to do. Um, right. And I, you know, normally I'm thank you to, to SNK honestly for this SNK 40th wouldn't normally be a collection that um, would be released. It's a very, you know, uh, when you say like, okay, we're releasing a collection of pre Neo Geo arcade games, the, 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 the number of people who would really be interested in that and pick that up is, is not a huge number of people. And so, and I think we went in knowing that, but both SNK and Digital Clips knew that it was an era that was important to share um, and important to inform people about. And so amazingly, we were able to get that collection together. And I think for the people who, who bought it, and I hear this all the time, that it's one of our you know, favorite collections because it was so informative and because it sort of took a chance as far as covering these games that people are most normally not familiar with. And, you know, isn't that sort of cash grab as far as like, oh yeah, we know this is going to be successful. Let's do it. It was more of like, let's preserve these games because um, some of these arcade um, PCBs are very old. I mean, we're talking like 40, 40 years old uh, at this point. And we actually had to do a bit of like Indiana Jones archaeological exploration and going to Japan and tracking down who has these motherboards and, you know, and, and, and then getting them so that we could do certain things. Like, for example, some of the, the games were uh, some of the first to have digitized voice, like audio, right? Um, and up to that point, no one had really captured uh, the audio and the emulation of some of those games correctly because really people didn't have access to those boards. So we spent a lot of time going out there and, and digging up the boards. And this is the thing that most people don't notice or see for all of our collections um, because you know, they just think, oh, okay, you got these games from the internet or whatever. You got ripped them from whatever and you put them on a collection. But really, that's just not a lot of work goes into like finding uh, even the arcade hardware for this stuff and making sure it's accurate. So, you know, SK 40th is is really probably the only place that you can get accurate emulation and audio for quite a few of the games, like period, like even with MAME and other things like that's the place to do it. So, you know, I, I kind of come full circle and say like, you know, even from SK 40th or the big things like such as like Street Fighter or Samurai Showdown and stuff like that. Um, it's the whole idea of like preserving these games so that they're on your shelf and they have you have easy access to them again. It is sort of educating people on why these games are relevant or important. And it is to also hopefully um, bring in a new, new audience who might not have played these games originally. Um, but again, because of our sort of informative museums and the quality of life improvements that we do and, and the, sort of the care and the love that we put into these collections, obviously, hopefully, um, gain their interest as well. And it's a win-win for everybody. So that is sort of in a nutshell, uh, sort of what I think the digital eclipse kind of focus is. And then circling back to your question, and I, I mentioned this earlier, but, but Street Fighter, I was brought in to um, work on Street Fighter 30th Anniversary Collection, which was my first release at Digital Eclipse. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And I want to make sure listeners know Digital Eclipse, the Street Fighter 30th Anniversary Collection, the Disney Afternoon Collection, the Mega Man Legacy Collection that you mentioned, SNK 40th you mentioned, uh, Samurai Showdown Neo Geo Collection. uh, All these collections about bringing these retro games that were or are, depending upon uh, where you are, were not available to so many people to play. letting them leap forward kind of into more modern gameplay eras. Cause as we know, many games are lost to time either by way of control scheme with certain types mm-hmm. of controllers uh, or, you know, code goes away or licensing fades away. So it seems to me that digital eclipses mission is to make sure that gamers in a more modern age are able to go back and play games uh, as they were played, you know, years ago and with improvements as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely uh, the, the, the way to go. And I think part of that um, process that is a win-win, I think, for everybody is that during sort of the explorations and sort of the what I call the Indiana Jones-esque archaeology digs that we do with each collection is that we come across stuff that, um, you know, may have not even even known to exist or fade to the wind. And the example I give of that is... Um, a game, the Samurai Showdown Neo Geo Collection, which includes a game, a version of uh, Samurai Showdown 5 called Perfect at this point, that um, most people did not even know existed. Um, It was only sort of really discovered during our interviews and talking to former employees of SNK and um, asking them about, you know, the Samurai Showdown games and their impact and their work on it. And through these discussions, we kind of came... Uh, to this discovery that there was a version of the of of that Samurai Showdown Five that was kind of demoed or uh, you know put out for public for like maybe a day in an arcade in Japan as a test, and then after that just sort of disappeared. Um, and like I said, most people were not even aware. Um, we certainly weren't aware of its uh, existence as far as like it actually. Uh, being uh, finished or anything like that. Um, But through these interviews, we discovered that one of the people on the staff actually not only had worked on that, but also uh, seemingly had the game on a hard drive somewhere at their house. Um, So we're like, wait a minute. (laughs) And it was sort of brought up in a sort of semi-casual way. And then I, I, you know, kudos to uh, our team who were there interviewing them, um, you know, came to that, realization like wait a minute uh what did you say and 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 came to this conclusion that okay this is some something important and we continue to dig and work with snk to explore it further and found out the whole backstory of it and how this version of samurai Shonen 5 was basically complete um didn't go anywhere and so we took that opportunity to not only uh take that game and finish out some stuff but also um get in the english story finish the english story because it hadn't been fully finished at all and then include it for the first time ever um in a collection and for people to play so you know part obviously part of our journey as you said is to and our focus is to bring these older games to sort of modern uh, platforms and and sort of modern gamers and also retro gamers but during that time it's to dig out things like samurai showdown 5 perfect that we didn't even know existed but and would have been gone. Like if we, if the dominoes hadn't lined up properly at that moment, it's easily a fact that that would have been missed. And we, the world would have never known anything about Samurai Shonen Perfect, but just because of 
the chances of us working on it and the, and the time and the situation. Um, now we have a new version and theoretically the last Neo Geo game ever released uh, publicly, right? Um, mm-hmm. We have that out. So that's those are the wins and the joys that we have. And, you know, we may not have a lot of huge wins like that all the time, but with every collection, there are discoveries and interesting stories or interesting art or background materials that have never been seen before that we are able to dig up. And being able to share that with the public and especially fans is, you know, really rewarding and hopefully will help future people, you know, like 20 years from now, you're writing a story about uh, uh, SNK's pre-Neo Geo era as an example. You know, you can refer to our collection and all the information there and use that as a as a guide of sorts to um, what these games were and why they're important. And so hopefully that is the case and we can continue to educate future generations and kind of pass along that knowledge. As brilliant and and wild to think about the different kind of projects you guys find that only exist now on people's hard drives or Mm -hmm. uh, kind of in in scattered different places there. Um, We had listeners write in a couple questions and I wanted to piggyback on them as well. Sure. Uh, Given that you guys have to work with different console manufacturers, some still current, others uh, long departed from our gaming industry, and one of the one of the questions came from Mr. Babbitt, who hosts a PlayStation so PlayStation show. Uh, he wanted to know: Do you do you see PlayStation or Xbox streaming services as a good way to step in and help with game preservation? Uh, and with your work, I know you guys do some things with netcode to make sure that uh, games are able to be played online, those that were not originally intended to be. Right. Uh, and is there a single thing that that any manufacturer, PlayStation, Xbox, Nintendo, could do to better preserve games? Because I think. Uh, from the outside looking in, mind you, from my my perspective, uh, I see Nintendo absolutely trashing their own libraries, you know, mm-hmm. not making them well available. I see Xbox, who arguably has the weakest of the three legacies in first party, doing the best job at pres- preserving games and making things playable. Right. And PlayStation's kind of in the middle. Uh, does that line up with you? And is there something they could do better? Um, yeah, I would agree with you there, um, no doubt. Um you know, I, I think, let me start out the streaming question first. And I, and I do think that, um, to agree, while, uh, you know, most companies or a lot of companies have had problems uh, basing uh, things on just a streaming platform for games, right? You had Microsoft's attempt early on OnLive stuff, and you've had Google with Stadia, and now you have Amazon with Luna. Um, there's no doubt that a lot of companies are attempting to sort of do that approach. And I think inevitably at some point that will work when everyone has, you know, when, when the whole country and the world has like the internet uh, capacity and speed to do it, right? Because your experiences with those kind of streaming services will vary depending on where you are, even in the United States, right? Um, so um, what I like about streaming in general is that uh, since all of, you know, the game and, and all of the, the, sort of functionality and stuff like that is done on a server in a remote location that is generally quite powerful, you are able to be able to play, and and obviously Stadia was an example of this, be able to play games that would generally require higher-end PCs, but be able to play it on, say, like, you know, a a phone or something like that, or like a Chrome browser or things like that, whatever the strength of your uh, power of your PC is. So I think there is that idea... Of, of being able to run uh, games remotely and then be able to access them on any platform is 
uh, as far as an end goal, a, a very good one because it it reduces the the sort of uh, cost of entry from the standpoint that you can pretty much run it on anything or TV, for example. Um, and um, with a little bit of work, things like multiplayer and things like that can be very very easily done on those platforms. So you can retain a lot of that stuff. The problem is that um, there isn't a, a consistent uh, group that's sort of trying to do that universally. Um, and I don't think that would be feasible. I think it would require the the first party folks, Nintendo, Microsoft, and Sony, for example, to kind of do this on their own. And to a degree, uh, they are, you know, like Microsoft has obviously tried this a bit. They're still doing this with their sort of xCloud sort of stuff. Um, Sony has done this with their PlayStation Now um, sort of structure as far as focusing on streaming games and things like that. Um, Nintendo, not so much. Um, so I, I think that we're still in the infancy of that kind of idea, but I do think that maybe decades from now, um, once you get the platforms and you can run these games on a server, uh, you know, powerful server somewhere, that could be the, the most um, direct way in order to provide access to a larger library of classic games or older games to a, a large audience of, of people, right? So I think the direction of the streaming stuff is a good thing. It hasn't quite gotten there yet. And it's predominantly focused uh, outside of like uh, some other smaller companies who are focused on retro. Um, it's predominantly, I think, focused on modern games to a degree or in the last, you know, uh, five to 10 years of the type of games that are being streamed for the most part. But like I said, I think that is a, that is a solid direction. Um, secondly, what I, I do feel is important, and uh, Microsoft is, has been sort of a leader in this in, in backwards compatibility, is to develop a way of building your, your consoles or the, the platform layer to continue to allow for um, future systems to be backwards compatible to a degree. And <clears throat> I think doing that is very, very important. Um, you know, uh, hardwares fail and consoles die um, before, you know, before games disappear generally. And so being able to play older games on modern systems is always a great thing. So I applaud Microsoft for their efforts uh, on that endeavor. Um, Sony, I think, is starting to get there, I think, with the rumblings and rumors of, of their... Um, potential uh, variations of PlayStation Plus and things like that and, and sort of backwards compatibility. It seems like some stuff is brewing over there and they see the significance of it. Uh, they might be, you know, a bit slower than Microsoft in, in having that occur. But you've seen you've seen snippets of that in the past when they did various like PlayStation emulators as one-offs for individual games and things like that. But not to a broad, not to a broad scale. But I think the company as a whole, my feeling is that is coming to uh, the conclusion that that is important, right? Um, so I think that you're going to see some big strides by Sony to, to maybe work on emulators or improve their streaming platform to allow for a, a little bit larger and longer access to, to sort of games. Um, coming to Nintendo, that is a tough one, right? Um, I... And, I, you know, I think being a Nintendo fan, and I think most Nintendo fans will agree with me in that, um, it is difficult uh, being a Nintendo fan sometimes because of the way that Nintendo approaches their legacy games, right? Um, you know, it's very uh, hit or miss. The way that they release them is hit or miss. There isn't a consistent manner in order to get uh, the games that you want. 
Um, and oftentimes as consoles disappear, um, it's, you know, you can't, and stores are closed. You can never get access to those games again. So it's very, very, um, difficult, especially if you don't have the physical release of, of said, said game. So I think they, as a company have a lot to think about and having some of the most rich library of legacy IP and games, it is a little bit tragic. I feel that, um, they haven't put more company resources because Lord knows they have the resources and the money and the time to do this. Um, I feel that, and maybe, you know, the, the, you see that in the switch, the sort of Super Nintendo Genesis NES um, emulation layers, maybe that will continue to grow and um, they will add more and more systems and continue to add to that. So maybe this is the genesis of, you know, a bright future for Nintendo and Nintendo fans from the standpoint that they'll continue to build upon what they have on Switch Online and, and, and grow from there. But I do feel that there is a lot that they can can do. And, um, you know, for all three companies, they have the they have the manpower, they have the money and resources to build these emulators. Sure, they can take time, years even, for some of this uh, stuff because of the complexity of, of the platforms, but um, they have the time to do it. And I think, you know, knock on wood, that some of them at least understand the importance and significance of this and are now um, sort of putting resources towards that. We may not see the fruits of those labors for years to come, but I think uh, in the coming years, we will see an improvement from them, even from Nintendo on that regard. Will it be as much as we want it to be? Probably not, but it is at least pro- forward progress in, in sort of in the right direction and sort of to like, you know, to help, hopefully to help them out and to sort of fill in the empty spots. Uh, hopefully digital clips can help contribute to that, you know, as well. It feels like you guys are doing that by way of the Eclipse engine and some of the things that you guys have built around game preservation. Uh, basically, the original game comes in, you guys put it into the Eclipse engine, and then that makes it that much more portable, uh, if that's the correct word, to other platforms. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, the Eclipse engine is sort of a layer, really, because we have obviously a lot of of emulators uh, that we work with uh, across a variety of platforms, arcade, NES, Genesis, Super Nintendo, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, they obviously handle games in a different way. The original hardware was written, uh, you know, designed in a certain way. And, and so in order to make that more manageable, we have sort of this layer that's part of our, our internal engine um, that allows uh, sort of a communication layer between the emulator and our engine and handles things like, you know, the controllers and, and what are the, how many buttons does the system have, right? And, and how does that map to um, current, whatever system you have it on, right? Um, and allow people to configure it. How, you know, how, how is the, the video and audio uh, handled and how do we, what do we need to do to that to process it and things like that? So it's, it's kind of crucial from the standpoint that, it allows, it's the sort of a part of the crucial layer that allows our emulators to kind of run uh, more easily on whatever system that you want, right? Um, so, and especially moving down, um, because we get this all the time, but years from now, maybe someone will come back and say, hey, um, you know, Capcom or someone will say like, hey, we want to work on, uh, you know, Street Fighter 40th anniversary or 50th anniversary or something, right, uh, down the road. Um, we don't have to completely start over because... 
um, we have all the arcade games running in the Eclipse sort of engine layer. And we have all the hooks and everything like that. And then we can easily transport that to another future platform, whether it be like, you know, PlayStation 6 or, you know, Xbox, whatever they call it, or the next Switch, right? So right. it's sort of helping for future us too, um, in that it it we do the work now, we get it all hunky-dory and working properly, and then that's easily transportable um, to future endeavors. And we don't have to like put in a ton of effort again um, for those particular collections. So that's the idea. It's kind of future-proofing uh, a bit, but it also currently right now, uh, sort of in layman's terms, just makes it easier for us to be able to take emulators and have them work across a large variety of systems um, as easily as possible. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that question came from Hypecaster. I want to credit him. Uh, well, take me now to what is, in my mind, one of the most anticipated games collections uh, of of this year, I think. Uh, the Cowabunga Collection. That right. is so exciting. The return of the Ninja Turtles in their uh, oldest form. Some of the best Game Boy games, arcade mm -hmm. games. Tell me a bit about this project and how it came together. Who approached to... Give me the rundown on this. I'm stoked for this one. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a great one. Um, you know, every every so often we really uh, get to work on some properties that everyone is very excited about. I mean, obviously with every Digital Clips product, there's, there's always a group of people who are very excited about um, the property and stuff like that. But I think Turtles sort of transcends and like it's, it's one of those things where everybody involved in it who touches it is very nostalgic for it and very excited about it and mm -hmm. um you know this is something along with you know we always uh, have a, a good partnership with with konami um we've been the main studio and i've worked on a few of these uh we've been the main studio for Yu-Gi-Oh for quite a few years um i don't know how many people know that but really if you're a Yu-Gi-Oh fan you've probably been playing uh, predominantly digital eclipse uh, maybe well it's not under the digital eclipse brand but it's the same group of people it's other ocean um so I've worked on a fair share of uh, Yu-Gi-Oh games over the last, you know, four years or so. And so we've always had a very good relationship with Konami. And obviously Konami has some wonderful IPs like Castlevania and Contra and, um, and of course, uh, the Turtles games that they've done in the past. And so we always are in contact and... You know, um, over the years, we've discussed things like doing a Castlevania collection because we have a lot of, of fans at Digital Clips who are huge Castlevania fans. Um, but that's never, you know, that's never sort of came to pass. Those were stuff, those were things that like Konami wanted to try to do, I think, internally, um, which they did. Obviously, they released a collection of, of, of Castlevania uh, some year, a couple years ago, probably three or four years ago now. Um, but... Um, you know, in the, in the background was always turtles and we never put a lot of uh, focus or energy into that, uh, pursuing that because we always felt that like the licensing rights to it would have been, you know, would have been a pain across all the games and, and having across to, like, like what, 13 games. Yeah. It's like 13 games. Yeah. It's 13 games. So, um, um, so just trying to, to, to get the rights to include all that stuff and, you know, work with uh, Viacom and Nickelodeon um, and just the, the amount of like ducks in a row that you have to get in order to get everyone to sign off on that, right, um, is is um, amazingly difficult. Which is why you know you don't see this stuff that often. Uh, you know these collections that often. It's always one off sort of things like that because it's it's so much work just to get clearances for everything and and the amount of work to go in and say like what what 
do people own? Do we own this or does Viacom own this or who owns this and who owns Mm -hmm. this? And so before you even start on the first line of code, there's a ton of work that goes into figuring out the logistics of like who owns what and can we get the clearance and things like that. So, um, so we never, like I said, we never sort of actually pursued it until probably a couple years ago when um, there was a, a glimmer of hope that like it might come together and that um, Konami um, might have uh, some interest in sort of releasing it. So we talked about it and we talked about it and um, eventually uh, just more and more work got done with it internally at Konami and the clearances needed and things like that. And then, you know, they came back to us as like, hey, um, we can do this. Um, we, we've got all the rights. We've got uh, the necessary people involved and things like that. So if you guys want to do this, uh, let's do this. And of course, uh, we are very excited. And and one thing I will say that is a little bit unique um, about this project is that Konami, when we were talking to them seriously about signing on to do this, is that they had already spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, they had very clear ideas of like what they wanted included. Um, they had... Uh, suggestions of some of the games that they want um, and, and things like that. And many, many design sort of ideas and concepts, and which is something that you don't normally get um, when you're hired on to do a game because most of the time publishers expect that you are going to come up with stuff, right? You're going to say, okay, here's the idea. Now you guys go off, come up with the idea for everything and then pitch that to us and we'll say if it's okay. But there's no doubt that there was uh, there was already some love and interest in Konami with this. And People had put thought down on paper. And we really appreciate that because we knew going into this project that it wasn't just our excitement, but it was the excitement of Konami as well. And and that's generally a recipe for success when you have two sides who are very passionate, very excited about something. Uh, Good things come out of that, right? So so they said, you know, let's do this. And and we did. And um, and that's sort of how the the start of that uh, collection uh, came to pass. And I think obviously... Um, early on, you always kind of debate about what games should you include? Do we do we split this up and things like that? But to their credit, Konami's like, no, let's go all out. Let's let's get as many of the games as we of the classic games as we can into this collection. Of course, for us, that's like that's like music to our to our ears, right? Um, it's like, yeah, um, let's over deliver, right? Um, most people are not going to expect this many games. If we can do this many games, let's let's do it and wow people. Um, and, and they were on board. And so early on, we were saying like, yeah, let's get all of these games, all these 13 games, which is large for a collection of this, of this sort, um, and get them all in there. And, um, and so we were able to do that. And, you know, um, again, to their credit, Konami's credit, um, they worked really hard to get us behind the scenes content and, um, you know, just a wealth of art and images and things like that. And a bunch of other stuff that we haven't even revealed yet. Um, this is a huge uh, collection, no doubt, um, to have been worked on and, and as far as its content overall. And, you know, I can't wait until, um, and I've said this before in some of my tweets, I can't wait till we can share more. And we've, we've, we've given a little bit of a glimmer of that. Like we talked about some of the sort of mini strategy guides uh, that have been made uh, in this collection to sort of represent the old classic magazines of old, um, like Nintendo Power and, and things like that in the heyday and kind of capture the magic of that. And and that's just sort of one small component of some of the stuff we've done. So I have no doubt that if people were sort of floored by um, just the game footage that was shown at the Sony's State of Play, um, when we really uh, announced stuff for this collection, I think they're going to be um, quite a bit blown away. 
recently at GDC, a bunch of incredible Game Pass numbers came out as far as like engagement and whatnot. Mm. Is that something that appeals to to a collection uh, or, or something like Digital Eclipse where you've got all of these games when you've got people investing into it? Or is it better off to be IP dependent? Like Ninja Turtles might garner more interest than Aladdin or not, or the other way around, you know, like how does that factor? Yeah, I mean... Um... Yeah, Game Pass is amazing. Um, I, I think as a service, it's it's incredible. My my always concern about Game Pass, if I were to say this, is that it like it reduces the need for people or a lot of people to buy physical, right? Mm-hmm. Which is sort of how the easiest way for things to last a longer time, right? So my fear is to a degree. Um, uh, not if we're following the whole streaming thing that we talked about earlier, where we continue to add and add and add. That's one thing. But um, the just the inherent design of Game Pass, where um, one month you have a selection of games and then the next month they're gone. Some are gone, right? And they mm-hmm. won't ever appear on Game Pass again. That is um, a scary proposition for me because um, what it gets is um, people playing now and seeing the value of being able to play a game now but once it's gone, it's sort of gone. And if you miss the window of getting it, you know, physically, uh, or maybe there isn't a physical version, then uh, perpe- you know potentially that that game can disappear into the to the the ether, right? Um, so what I think Game Pass is excellent for is encouraging people to try new games and new experiences, especially from indie developers um, who. You may not, you know, people have a limited amount of income and some of that. You, you can't go physically buy every indie release um, that's available, um, if it is available physically. But uh, on, a, on a service like Game Pass, um, you can easily jump around and see stuff that interests you. And I hope, my, my, my desire uh, is that if people do find something on Game Pass that they really like, um, and enjoy that they go and they also buy it physically in order to not only support the original development team, but to also aid in sort of like, hey, five years from now, 10 years from now, if I want to play this game again, I have it on my shelf and I can access to that, right? Gotcha. So, yeah. That makes sense. Uh, I kind of more, just a few more things to touch on as far as Cowabunga Collection. Sure. Some of the, some of the games in the Cowabunga Collection, either way, by way of their control scheme or just their initial design, would be considered way too hard for modern audiences. How does uh, how do you guys factor in as far as extras going, or if you want to adjust or or make it possible for people to play through games? Is that something you even want to do? Because it would seem to combat the idea of game preservation on some level. Uh, right. I'm thinking about the NES Turtles game, right? Or right. the Ad- Infinite Continues in the arcade game, and you know some things we see, some things we don't. Right. Right. Um. We are, yes, um, we always like to give players choice, right? So um, everything we do is optional. Um, you know, I, I, I give it the example of like um, in in later releases of Mega Man Legacy Collection, we actually give the option to overclock the CPU um, for the NES in emulation so that you can get rid of, um, well, either you can get rid of the sprites flicker, right? Which is notorious for some of the, from the early games, or... You can remove the uh, limitations, the number of sprites on screen limitation of the NES so that you don't have, um, again, you know, a flickering issue or slowdown and things like that, right? So um, we kind of view these sort of things, uh, quality of life improvements in in a couple of different ways. Um, The first one is 
uh, with Rewind and the watch movies. And uh, let me explain watch movies or replay movies for those who might not have uh, understanding of it or haven't picked up any of Digital Eclipse collections is that um, we actually developed a system for recording the playthroughs uh, of entire games. And most people are like, oh, yeah, it's just a movie, right? And like, no, no, it's, it's actually not a movie. It's, it's quite more complex than that. Um, we actually record uh, keyframes and we record all the inputs, the controller inputs of the person playing the game so that at any time when you're watching this, and you can skip forward and backwards just like Netflix or any other video, um, but since it's the actual game, at any time you can um, sort of pause the game and then jump in and start playing right at that moment. Um, so um, it's it's kind of a magical thing for me. Even when I see it today, it's amazing because you know you can skip forward and usually like say, Oh, you know what? I play the first three levels. I want to play four. You know, I just skip forward to level four and then just start playing there. Um, or I, you know, uh, I, I can go back or I can watch uh, someone play this and help me solve a puzzle or help uh, understand like where I'm supposed to go in a particular level, right? Um, so we feel that those things are very, uh, very important from the standpoint that like you don't have to use them if you don't want to. But we also want people to be able to enjoy and experience the whole game as the original developers um, intended, right? And in most um, sort of situations, limitations like hardware limitations or performance limitations um, are things that the original development teams could not do anything about. And so they tried their best. And so... The options, like I said before, where we can try to increase the number of sprites or reduce the flicker and things like that. In some cases, let me get, let me just clear that like people designed games um, back in the day to account for that stuff in and in, in clever ways, right? But most of the time, um, the hardware limitations on any platform are just an annoyance and and detract from the overall experience that the original development team are trying to do. So we try to provide options in order to more fully realize what the excuse me, the goals and desires of the original team were doing. So that's where some of that stuff comes in. The other stuff like Rewind and the Watch movies and things like that hopefully allow a larger audience or a number of people to fully experience the game and as a whole and not get stuck, right? And just say, play right. like the first two hours and just say, oh, it's too hard. Because the the really the joy and the magic is excuse me, is to um, see the whole experience, right? And, and, and take in the whole game. And so that's how we kind of view this stuff. And, and the process for coming up with these sort of um, features and quality of life improvements are, sort of happen organically with each project um, because we think about like, <clears throat> we think about like what is important and what are the goals of the project and and what makes sense and that's how, how sort of it, it derives from that stuff but the key thing that i want to put here is that all of this stuff is is very much optional and if you want to sort of play the game in its original uh, you know aspect ratio and resolution with no borders and no fancy filters or anything like that you can um, you can absolutely do that we will never ever uh, uh knowingly force a player to play a game in a way that is not indicative of the original experience. However, for those that want to, uh, we have a whole plethora of options and features and things like that, um, that hopefully will aid and improve your experience of, of playing these, these titles. 
So I have two more questions for you. Sure. Uh, one is a bit tongue in cheek. The other, uh, perhaps less so. We, <laughs> I'm gonna be careful here. One of the things that garnered a lot of attention for Digital Eclipse a few years ago was a campaign that brought awareness to the idea of bringing other games uh, from days of your back. And Marvel vs. Capcom 2 got a lot of traction on that right. one. And it brought up the idea of games being lost to time and, yes. and whatnot. Um, is there anything you can say on, on a title like Marvel vs. Capcom 2 or others that might be down the pipeline for Digital Eclipse? <clears throat> well, I mean... You know, we're always working on a lot of stuff um, simultaneously, right? It's never just one project at a time. And we always look at, you know, specifically Marvel's Capcom scenario. Um, you know, we, we try to do our part to, to get people to talk or to bring awareness um, to um, things like that and, and try to get people, you know, especially with Marvel's Capcom, as an example, um, the number of parties involved is, is quite a lot, right? And... Um, Things have shifted and, and, you know, oftentimes with these sort of franchises, people are unsure of who owns what or what, who needs to give clearance for what and things like that. Um, so it's, it's a tough one, right? It's, it's obviously a tough one, which is why those games haven't been, or that game hasn't been available for a while. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't really have anything to add that I can talk about, about MVC, uh, the whole um, sort of um, public kind of facing um campaign to get that released sure um you know uh whenever there's a window for us to try to contribute to that stuff or try to encourage people to release stuff like that or even if we don't make it um we try to do that we do a lot of just like talking to companies in the background and, and, and saying like hey what are you guys doing with this what are you guys doing with this are you do you know that there's an interest in this in the public and oftentimes you know companies are not even aware that there is a that they have value in certain properties that they have, right? They're kind of oblivious to it. Um, so we all the time in our conversations have to say like, you do know if you were to release X, like how successful that would be. There's such a fervor about it. They're like, really, right? Um, not that that's the case with uh, Marvel versus Capcom, but I just say it as a general point. Sure. But um, Marvel versus Capcom is, is, is a tough one. Like, would we like to be involved in that um, <clears throat> in the future sometime if the opportunity arises? Yes. Um, do I feel that um, it, the, the campaigns by um, major influencers and such in the public uh, about the campaign have been noticed by the parties at Capcom and Disney, et cetera, and Marvel? Um, I would say yes, certainly. Um, to, to what degree that that results in another release, it's, it's hard to say right now because these things take time. But all I can say is to encourage folks is just keep it up. Like, you know, keep... Uh, getting the message out there, keep showing that there is an interest for any sort of property, right? Um, and people will hear and inevitably at some point, there will be people at these companies who say like, you know what, this is this, this drive and this interest has been going on for a long time now, we should really do something about it. And, and then something magical happens. And hopefully there's a spark that starts. So who knows? But I say, don't be silent, uh, be loud and, and make your interest known. And at some point, um, hopefully it will, it will, like I said, generate a spark that results in something um, cool. Excellent. <clears throat> Excellent. Great to hear. And, and I'm sure a lot of people will 
uh, continue to make their voices heard. Uh, my final question for you, Stephen, we saw the Calabunga collection uh, at the state of play. A lot of people are excited for it, including me. Pre-orders went up on Amazon. Uh, I don't think they're on digital services yet. When or when could we expect kind of to find out more ballpark or uh, if you can't say that, where should we be looking for when that news does come down the pipeline? Right. Um, I think, uh, and I don't want to put words in county zones, but I think they're still sort of figuring out um, how to best roll out more information uh, about this, right? Um, uh, quite honestly, I think we all expected that this was going to resonate with people and be a success, but to the extent that it has. I mean, I was blown away by the amount of positive reception um, and just excitement about this property. And you always, when you work on this stuff for a while, you always are hopeful. You're always thinking in the back of your head, man, I hope people like this. I hope people get excited about this. But the sheer positive response that we received and Konami received um, was staggering. So thank you for everyone who sort of reached out. It, it made us feel really good. These projects are never easy to do. Um, especially when you have so many games and so many moving parts. Um, so it means a lot when people um, express their excitement for this stuff. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, but um, I think, quite honestly, that that level of excitement has caused us to sort of step back a bit. It's like, oh, wow, okay. There is genuine, like, a lot of interest about this. What is the best way that we can share more information with people and continue to get them excited? Because there's still a lot to, to share. And so I think we're at that stage right now where, uh, Konami is sort of figuring out, okay, what is the schedule for this? How do we avail more us uh, to keep uh, fans uh, excited and learning more about the product? And when do we announce sort of the release date? So um, I think um, I think that there is no answer to like when those those timeframes are quite yet. I think they're working on it right now. Um, that's my sort of guess. Uh, and so, but I would expect in the near future that there'll be sort of another wave of information and another wave of information, uh, no doubt. So um, just stay tuned. You know, we'll be on our digital eclipse uh, sort of um, social stuff. We'll be sharing it. I'm sure Konami will be sharing it and Nickelodeon and everyone else. Um, so just stay tuned to that. Um, you know, I do want to say uh, wholeheartedly thank you for everyone's excitement about this project. Uh, we can't wait until everyone gets a chance to sort of play it and see all the other cool stuff that we have uh, included into it. Um, but just uh, hang in there and, uh, you know, um, I'm sure more information will be coming in the near future. Stephen Frost, thank you for your time. Let people know where they can find you. Sure. Um, I am on Twitter uh, at Frostman007. And uh, that's probably the best place to sort of uh, find me. And then, of course, uh, we, are, uh, we have digital clips of various uh, accounts, uh, digital clips on Facebook and Twitter. Just search us out and, and please add us and we'll continue to update people on uh, the Calabunga collection and other collections that uh, we are working on as soon as we can talk about them. But I will say that um, 2022 is a busy year for us. Um, it will probably uh, include probably some of the most number of releases that we have as a company. Um, especially going into 2023. So if you're excited about sort of what we do um, in, the, in the collections that we sort of release, definitely stay tuned because we have a lot of stuff uh, in the works.